0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. We're going to be in the book of Galatians today. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn your way, a digital copy. You can tap your way to Galatians chapter 1. So we've been in Galatians talking about bearing one another's burdens and sharing our sins with each other. But the theme of Galatians as a book is a little bit bigger than that. So we're going to kind of talk through this morning. One of the main concerns of that book... To help us understand what I think may be the toughest thing to, to share, to tell the truth about. So as David said, next week, man, we're kicking off. We're going to talk about anxiety as a church. And I, I hope you understand. We're talking about it because like, I need to hear it. I'm excited to study it. I'm thinking about it all the time because I'm kind of a fearful person or not even kind of like just a very fearful person. Uh, But also our hope is like as people get back into rhythm and school life is the rhythm as people get back into kind of expecting the week to look a certain way and waking up at certain times, they may be more open to thinking about coming to church. It just seems to work that way. So we'd encourage you to be inviting people to come next week as we kick off kind of in the fall. A way to do that is to talk about anxiety, to be free a little bit with what goes on in your life and maybe start to understand where Jesus could meet people that you love and that you want to know him. One of those places can be uh, with fear. It's something that most of us experience most of the time. And it's something that God has outlawed, forbidden, I don't know. Do, do you know the most frequent command in Scripture? Like you might think that it would be something about like sex or blasphemy, but actually the most frequent command in Scripture is fear not. And you can think of that as a command, like God saying, fear not. And you're like, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're not making it easier with your tone. But, but no, it's a, it's a dad saying, hey, don't be afraid. And I want us to see together, and I want us to show the community how that is true. That if we know the Lord, we can get to a place where we can say, fear not. Maybe it's something you could share. We definitely hope that you'll invite somebody to be a part of that short, but hopefully impactful series. Like I said, today though, I want to finish up our Tell the Truth series and talk about what you may have thought we wanted to talk about the whole time when we talk about Tell the Truth, which is, fancy word, evangelism. It really just means sharing of Jesus with other people. Specifically, sharing about Jesus in a way that those other people could then like, come to a saving faith in Jesus. Or not just know about him as a historical figure, but interact with him as a risen Lord. And Evangelism is probably the hardest thing of the, t- the stuff we've talked about. And we started with bearing one another's burdens. Now that's hard. That's hard because it takes a little introspection for you to get to a place where you know enough about yourself to, to share something with somebody else. I mean, you got obvious stuff, you know, your aunt's in the hospital with a broken hip and you know, you got some problem with the car or the kids are crazy or you got something you wanna share with people. But to take a moment See yourself and share who you are with somebody else and and show some warts. That's hard. To make some time in your life to be able to receive other people when they show you some of their hard stuff and you go, oh man, we need to go to lunch. And we need to go to lunch like every week for a while and just pray with each other and talk to each other because that's heavy. It takes time to do that and it's hard. Maybe harder is what we talked about last week, which is to share our sin with one another, to, to confess. And then, as it says in Galatians 6.1, uh, 6, to try and restore one another. If anybody's captured, if anybody's caught up in sin, those who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness okay, yeah, good. As long as they'll be gentle, maybe I'll talk about it. And and we come to a place where we can share some of our failings with each other. That's hard. It's hard because of shame. It's hard because we just really don't expect people to be very nice about it when we're so judgmental all the time. How can we expect somebody not to be judgmental towards us? But that's the gospel. The gospel is that I needed salvation. I'm not good in trying to help you who are bad. We are bad. (laughs) And we have a Savior who is good. Okay. Then you say, great. Now tell the truth about that Jesus to everybody in the world. When we get to that piece of of tell the truth, man, we we can slip up a little bit. It can be really hard. I think it's difficult to say that you're going to tell somebody not just who you are, but who they should be. Do you see that difference? Like our culture is really high on the like sharing who you are thing. As long as it's authentic, if you share who you are, it can be kind of anything. And people will say, thank you for sharing your truth. But that's not evangelism. Evangelism is saying, this is who I am because this is what's true what are you going to do with this truth? That, I know that. that is difficult. That's something that involves a lot of rejection. And I think rejection is the key reason that we get kind of tripped up by this. Obviously, we don't want to be rejected by people. We like people. We want people to like us probably more than we like people. And we don't want those people to think badly of us. So rejection becomes a real hurdle to get over if you're going to be somebody who's faithful to share about Jesus. But I think there are other reasons as well. I think sometimes Christianity is a thing that's in your head and it's sort of this private thing in your head, sort of like a fantasy. It's this thing that you want to be true and you kind of believe is true, but you don't talk about it because it's kind of a thing for you more. Like I have those fantasies. Whenever I see somebody play guitar really, really well, I imagine myself playing guitar really, really well, just melting faces with some like crazy solo and making that face that people make when they do those kinds of solos. I, ima- I can't play any instrument, but I imagine that myself. It kind of ruins my enjoyment of music because I immediately go to that little fantasy of me playing rock and roll and the whole world falling apart. That sounds awesome. You have that, you know, maybe it's an athletic fantasy. I played basketball and I have actually dunked on people but it's been a minute. And when I watch the NBA, I try to go back there. I try and imagine, wow, man, wouldn't it be awesome to just be that giant dude just dunking on. And in my head, it's not just dunking on somebody, which is impressive enough. It's dunking on somebody while like maintaining eye contact. That's when you've really defeated your opponent, when you can dunk on them and like maintain eye contact while you do it. I have that fantasy constantly. I think about it a lot. God forgive me. But I think Christianity can kind of become that for people. They imagine this thought process where there is a God. He is good. He does love you. And he's made you into something. He's called you to something. He's given your life this really great purpose. And you have this foundation. And you, yes. But it's always just kind of in your own head. You don't really talk to other people about it. And in that way, you kind of undercut the reality of it. I don't know. Maybe there's a part of you that wonders if, if you really do believe it. That if you started to share this Christianity, maybe somebody would disprove it. A great apologist named C.S. Lewis said that he was never less sure of a doctrine than when he stood up to defend it. Ooh, interesting. I think that's true. I think that can be the case. I think people and their rejection of us, people and their opposing views can start to really loom large. And Christianity can start to feel a little insubstantial. Man, I want to argue against that today. And I want to argue against it the way the Apostle Paul argued in the book of Galatians. He was a, a leader in the early church who wrote a letter to a church that he helped to start in this place that was farther from Jerusalem, in this kind of an area called Galatia. And as he was writing to them, he's writing to them because they had started to walk away from the gospel. And they walked away from the gospel for a very specific reason. And Paul's going to argue against that reason as an argument, as like can make a reasoned argument, but he also goes a little bit further and he starts to understand with people why it is that they've started to, to walk away from the gospel. It's not just an argument, but it's actually kind of a heart posture. It's a desire that they have that they try to rationalize. Now, it may seem a little bit convoluted here, but I want you to follow me. All right, so let's go to Galatians. Let's read in chapter one, verse one, and let's start to see what Paul's doing. And and if we can see it, if we can understand it, not just the specific argument that he's making, but the heart posture that he's arguing against, I think we can see something that's slowing us down in our evangelism. This is what he says in chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Greetings. Now, this is how they would write letters. They would start by saying who is writing the letter. They would then say who they're writing to, and then they would have some sort of salutation and begin the letter. That's what he's doing here. But you can notice that he's not just saying, Paul of Tarsus to Galatia. He's saying something about himself when he's writing this letter. He's beginning the letter in his statement about who he is by saying, I'm an apostle, but I'm not somebody that God has called to share the truth of the gospel by people. No, my authority comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Do you see the either or that he's starting to build? He started to create a distinction between man and and god and ministry that is beholden to man and ministry that is focused on god go down to verse six he says i'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of christ and are turning to a different gospel not that there really is a different one there's not two options but people talk about it in that way But there are some who trouble you and they want to distort. They want to twist or change or manipulate the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And if you read it, he says the same thing over again. He wants to emphasize so fully that the gospel can't be changed. The gospel he preached is the gospel that Jesus gave to his people. If that gospel comes from God, then it already has the highest authority and cannot be changed by any person. But he goes even further and says, it can't even be changed by any spirit. It can't even be changed by any angel. If somebody comes from heaven and tries to monkey with it, well, bull, because you can't be higher than the Lord of heaven and earth. So even if an angel comes and tries to mess with this gospel. Let him be accursed. And he's saying something that's actually what happened. Because angels did come. And they did try to distort what God had said. We see it in Genesis 3 when the enemy, the the, the devil did that. And he is, who, accursed. So what Paul's saying here is absolutely right. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't just, you know, a speaker getting warming to his topic. This is Paul saying what is absolutely true. It can't be changed. And this gospel comes from Christ. It comes from God. And he's going to get into the nuts and bolts of of this problem, but he's beginning here to show the deeper problem. He says in verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to, to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, that seems kind of weird when he's talking about angels preaching a false gospel or something, but what he's doing actually is really consistent. He's saying, why would you be tempted to believe in another gospel? Well, because you might like the people who are speaking that other kind of gospel. You might want to be influential like, or you might want to be approved of by the people who are speaking a different gospel than Jesus's gospel. But Paul said, no, 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 we are not. And he's using it, he's giving himself as an example of what they should also be. Seeking the approval of man. We're not trying to please man. In fact, if we were trying to do that, we would be manservants and we would not be a servant of Christ. Now, if you can start to feel that pull, if you can start to feel that distinction, can you start to see how it would be a problem in evangelism? What was happening in galatia is that they had started to change the gospel in order to fit with the sort of influential people's viewpoint and as soon as they started to change the gospel to be cool with the cool crowd it was no longer the gospel and what's more it was no longer a gospel that they would share with people who weren't already jews so the gospel stopped getting shared because of A group of people wanted to be like or be influential like or be liked by a cool group of people. Man, I think that that might be our problem with evangelism. When you think about the gospel, is it a message that our culture approves of? Or are there parts of it that you would rather hide Are there things about what the Bible says that our culture would get upset about if they knew that you believed it? If you believed what the Bible said about sexuality or gender, if if the world knew that you believed what the Bible said about role, about who God is and who we are, oh, now we start to see a little bit, don't we? you can start to see how your desire to be liked by or your even genuine love for somebody who's far from God, it tempts you to monkey with the gospel that we believe. Man, that's what was happening in Galatia. And that desire to be approved of by people keeps us quiet in evangelism. A guy named Ed Welch, we talked about him several times, but he talks about this topic really clearly. He's got a book called When People Are Big and God is Small, he's talking about the fear of man. He says, do you see this desire for approval of people in your life? If not, consider just one word, evangelism. Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Jesus because others might think that you are an irrational fool? Gotcha. Fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. Now, he's saying a couple of things there, but what he is saying is, this is everybody, guys. This is everybody. You say, oh, we want to be cool, and you think about a 13-year-old, and they just haven't understood enough about who they are to, to fight against the crowd. Well, no, I'm nearing on 40, and I very much feel this exact temptation. For Paul, as he goes to argue against it, He has to argue against something that's being trusted in or believed is a a, a failure that's being shared in by the apostle Peter. When we talk about trying to be cool, we're not just talking about something that might happen in your tweens. We're talking about the human condition. And how do we argue against it? Because if this is a problem, we want to fix it. How did Paul address this issue? Well, the first thing he seems to do is address the argument itself. If we want to be clear on the gospel and actually get to a place where we speak it, we've got to really know it. We've got to know what's true. And that's what Paul starts to do first. He starts to correct the problem. Now, the problem is going to sound a little convoluted, but follow me. What happened was this place in Galatia, there were some Jews, but then there were lots of people who are not ethnically Jewish. And a crowd had started a form that was both Jews and people that were not ethnically Jews. And they all accept Jesus, this, this new little church in Galatia. What happened was that some of the Jewish people said, you cannot be a Greek or a Roman or a Parthian or a Sidian and, and then become a Christian. What you have to do actually is become a Jew and then become a Christian. You can't just accept Jesus. First, you have to accept Moses. And the way that they insisted on that was through something called circumcision. Yeah. So in the Old Testament, there was this guy, Abraham, that God used and said, I am through you going to bless the world. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And that covenant is going to allow the world to see what salvation by faith really looks like. Go read Romans 4 uh, later today. And the way that he symbolized that covenant was through something called circumcision, which was like a surgery that happened to guys. They chose circumcision as this sign. The Lord gave that sign to Abraham. Fast forward, you get to Moses. Moses takes this covenant that God has given through Abraham and then expands it. Not on his own, God gives him this law and he shares it with the people of Israel, but he's the one that shares it. And so it's this law under Moses. And that includes a whole bunch of different things, a whole bunch of ceremonial things and a whole bunch of civic things and a whole bunch of like cultic things, things that involve their sacrificial system. But it was all still symbolized by circumcision. Well, when you get to Jesus, Jesus doesn't take those things and change them as if they were wrong and needed to be fixed. What he does is fulfills them. It's kind of like you have a relationship with somebody and you're getting these love letters from that person. And it's incredible. You're learning about that person. You're growing in your desire for that person. Well, imagine then that the person comes those love letters are still precious. You're still gonna keep them. But now you got something better. Like the love letters were all pointing towards the person. And now they have the person, they have Jesus. So those things have been fulfilled. And there's a lot to it. And, and I, was, um, I was critiqued after the first service for talking too fast because I got a lot here. But, but we can talk about all of that. What I'm trying to say, say is that what Jesus did fulfilled. Circumcision—it was no longer required. The sign of the covenant was something different now, and and what happened was that this Jewish people said, "No, no, no, that all sounds great, but it's actually wrong. You have to follow the law of Moses if you're going to be a follower of Jesus." And that's where Paul starts to argue. He says in chapter two, verses eleven and following, when Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So how does Paul handle the situation? He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I don't know if you followed all that or not, but look at the first part and the last part. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. How did Paul address this situation? Well, he starts by knowing what's true. How do you decide to overcome that fear of people to go and speak to them the gospel, even though it seems really hard, is you remember what is true. Man, he understood that they're not saved by what they do, they're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. When I say saved by what we do, so people have this kind of idea that if they do right, God will reward them for it. And if they do wrong, God will punish them for it. And if heaven and hell exist, then there must be some kind of math that says, if I do enough right, heaven. But if I do too much wrong, hell. You kind of have this idea. Maybe I could earn by my good deeds, by doing things right, I could get to a place where God owes me heaven. Oh, no. That's not Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that God can only forgive you if your full debt has been paid and we don't have the ability to pay our full debt. See, that's that's what Jesus came to do. When he came, he lived a perfect life and he died. And by dying, he paid the debt that sinners owe towards God for our, our sin, our rebellion. Man, we can only be saved if God in his grace gives us the gift of that salvation. Paul understood that and he starts to preach that and he starts to preach it to Peter, which is crazy. Who would know that better? But he had fallen out of step with the gospel because he desired, he desired the approval of influential people from this guy, James. Man, he had to see, Paul Paul was trying to help Peter to see what is true rather than what is popular. Go back to Galatians 1, look in verse 11. It says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached to me. It's not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... When he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up even to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What's Paul doing? He's sharing what's true in the gospel and he's remembering it by remembering how God saved him. Okay. Now, I don't know if you've been with us long enough to kind of see this coming, but we've been talking a lot about taking your testimony or the story of how you met God and writing it down into two paragraphs. Now, I've been saying it a lot in the hopes that maybe eventually people will actually do it because Christians develop a pretty good callus against like what pastors say to do. They're like, all right, if he means it, he'll say it five times. (laughs) All right. Well, this is like 11 times. So please actually do this. And we want you to do it because it's the same and different for different people. Like the same gospel is the same way that everybody gets saved. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But how that applied to you is really kind of in your circumstances. Yes, you were a sinner before Holy God. You heard the gospel, you respond to it, and your life is different. That's the same about everybody. But all of that takes place between God and you. So I wanna hear how God did that in your life. And if you can put that into two paragraphs, most of the feedback I've gotten from people is, oh, pastor, that's way more than two paragraphs, how the Lord has worked in my life. And I say, yes, amen, but make it two paragraphs because you can then in two paragraphs share with somebody your story, how God saved you. Now, what Paul's saying here is that remembering how God saved him actually allowed him to argue against a, a kind of distortion of the gospel that had fooled the apostle Peter. And I, I hope that you have the, the brain power and the wherewithal to, to read more about what we might call apologetics. You know, to pick up a book and read about the defense of the faith What are some good arguments to believe in the historicity of Scripture or to believe in the historicity of the resurrection or to understand sort of the philosophy of Christianity? But even if you don't, if you can just say yes to your testimony, to to how God saved you, you have a core gospel message that has all of the essential elements in it. You want to add wisdom to it. You want to add teaching to it. When Paul here is sharing about how he came to Christ, he's sharing more and less than he shares in other points in the book of Acts. He actually has given a lot of thought to that transition, to that salvation that took place. He's added wisdom to it. He says there that God has set Paul apart before he was born, that he had called Paul to himself out an abundance of grace by revealing Jesus to him. That is a very full understanding of a very terrifying experience that Paul had on the road to Damascus. He's clearly thought about it and examined it by Scripture. That's what we want to do. It's not just about experience. But your testimony is a clear and obvious way to share about how God saved you and how God saves people. Have it ready. Man, Paul understood the truth or understood the gospel but here also, Paul has his eye on God. While he not only has a true understanding of the gospel, in all these passages I've read you, he's been really clear that he chooses God, not man. He chooses to fear God, not man. Now, how does he do that? Well, he sees God as he is. In Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 10, so if you do have your Bible open and you can see, I mean, we can, it's kind of dark in here, but if you can see, go, go ahead and flip to Matthew chapter 10, because I, I do want you to see this. And this is Jesus's teaching to his disciples as he's about to send them to go and preach the gospel. So it's pretty relevant to our topic today. In Matthew chapter 10, down in verse 26, Jesus about to send them to go and to speak the gospel actually says, have no fear of them, meaning the people that they're going to speak to. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus is saying, don't have fear when you go and share the gospel of the people you're going to share with. That's exactly what we've been talking about. That's exactly what hoodwinked the people in Galatia. Okay, Jesus, thank you. Now, how do we not have fear? Well, he's saying because there's going to be a day when all will be revealed and you want to be a person who is saying things that were true and not things that were false. Amen. But then he goes further in his encouragement slash in his teaching. He says in verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Ah! (laughs) what he was giving me some encouragement there and then he said something crazy true but crazy he said don't fear people they can just kill you (laughs) i don't know that i would have said just but okay he says no instead fear god who can kill you and then kill you again wow what is he saying how is that encouraging that's terrifying Well, look at the next verse. He says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, have you ever heard somebody tell you that the hairs of your head are all numbered by God? Now, if you've been around church for a minute, some old lady's going to tell you that real sweetly. She'll say, hey, now don't be, sad. don't be so discouraged. God loves you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And it's a running total because you're losing hair all the time, lovely. You know, like they'll say something sweet like that. Do they ever share the verse before that where they're like, and don't worry about them. They'll just kill you. But God could kill you twice. <laughs> they don't say that. But Jesus did. And why does Jesus do that? Well, look at verse 32. He says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The crux, the corner, the the turning point of this encouragement is this. Either it's all true or it's not. Either God and his steadfast love has made a way for you to be saved and forgiven and he really is God, like holy God with a hell and a judgment and forgiveness and love or he's not. You can have all of it or you can have none of it. If it's all true, then it's incredibly encouraging but it's also really heavy and it also comes with a requirement that you share this gospel with other people, not to be saved, but because you are saved and you want to share the words of life with those that have to hear it. Or it's not. But there's no half measures. God's a God and he's not something that we just invent in our head as a little fantasy where he loves you how you want him to love you and he never asks you to do anything you don't want him to ask you to do. No, he, he is God who has made a way for your sins to be forgiven and souls hang in the balance. Yes, we believe that God is sovereignly doing all things and all things are gonna happen exactly according to his will. And we believe that he has commanded us to share this gospel with everyone. And that can be as confrontational as you kind of imagine it will be, or it can be as sweet as sharing who your, your story of Jesus with somebody and asking them what they think about it, knowing that you know that they, they need to accept that same Jesus. Man, it can be hard. But Jesus is saying that, that God, he, he sees you in this. He's the big God. He's the strong God. And he knows, he does know how many hairs are on your head. He cares about you more than the sparrows and he knows about all the sparrows man, this can be hard, but it's, it's good. It can create difficulty with people and, and man, it can make it so that people reject you, but you gotta do it. How do you do it? Well, you do it by remembering the God who saved you. Now this week, I, I would just encourage you to say, all right, every day, I'm gonna pray one time at least. Lord, will you give me somebody to share the gospel with today? And when that happens, just have that two paragraphs ready it's going to be weird and it's going to feel awkward, but, but just say, man, that makes me think about how God saved me. This may seem weird, but, but if you will, I, I was somebody that was far from God. I, I rebelled against him in every way I could. I didn't even really realize I was doing it. But as I started to learn about Jesus, I learned about this one that, that is holy and that I had broken with. I had broken the law of, but God in his grace. When I was 13, somebody was preaching and I was hearing about how God loves me enough to make a way for me to be forgiven by Jesus. Have you ever heard that before? What do you think about that? It can be as easy as that. That didn't take very long. It wasn't great, but it's something. And it had the gospel in it. And it invited them to speak back to you so that you can start trying to lead them to the only faith that's going to save. <laughs> the, only, the only gospel that is the gospel. Will you please commit to praying that just each day this week? What we're going to do now is we're actually going to transition. We're going to go from talking about the lamb to seeing sort of the supper of the lamb. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And what the Lord's Supper is, is a regular sort of renewal of the covenant. We have the baptism moment where you announce to the world that you're his, but then you take the Lord's Supper regularly, as often as you do it, to remember, to remember what was given for you, the body and the blood that was broken and shed for you. But more than just remembering the sacrifice, I think, is remembering the love that brought about that sacrifice. I'm gonna pray, and when I say amen, I'm gonna ask you to just take some time. Take some time to kind of prepare yourself for this supper. Like, if you have put all of your faith and your trust in Jesus alone for salvation, if you're a Christian, as we would define Christian, you're invited to come and and take this stuff. But the Bible says not to take it in a flippant manner. So if there's something you're hiding from God, just take a moment to confess that to him before you come and take these elements. If you're not a believer yet, man, listen, that's awesome. I'm so thrilled that you're here. But this is a supper for for people that have already put their faith in Christ. So we would just ask you to watch rather than partake. But let's let's do it together. Lord God and heavenly father, I do ask uh, to by your grace that as we take this supper, you would inform us about who you are. Lord, that you would lead us further into understanding how you're not like people. You're something so much greater and different. Your love is so much more full and your holiness, Father. Lord, your holiness is such that, that when you say something is right, it really is right. When you say something is wrong, it really is wrong. And we're wrong before you. And yet you, you put this, this Lord's Supper together to remind us regularly that the steadfast love of the Lord never changes that you will take away our iniquities. You'll, you'll separate them from us as far as the east is from the west. You're a good father <laughs> for all those that have put their faith in Jesus. So please prepare our hearts today to take this Lord's Supper. And as we do, Father, I pray that you would be glorified in your people's praise. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.